Well, good morning. I would like to uh, actually do our scripture reading today because it's uh, a little bit foundational for uh, today's sermon. So I'm going to be reading from Ephesians chapter 2. covering things here. Let me find my note. And I'll be starting in the first verse. I think it'll be up on the projector here. The Word of God says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loves us and loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's an amazing passage of Scripture and uh, explains so much about what takes place at the point of salvation and what God does for us. And it's a, a passage that uh, I, I would think Christians would want to reread frequently to um, just remind themselves of the, the cost of our salvation and what salvation does for us. That we will not have to answer for our sins before God. He has dealt with the wrath already through the death of his son, Christ, our Savior. We are teaching through a series that we have entitled, We Believe, that's intended to address the various sections of the proposed statement of faith, which uh, we'll be voting on next week. There's copies out in the foyer. If you have not received one of the newest versions, is the last version that we've been talking about for a number of weeks. And these the series and the statements that we have in that statement of faith, the proposed one, is, is on what the elders here at Redwood Christian Fellowship agree that scriptures teach on various issues such as the Bible. What is the Bible? About God and who Jesus is and the Holy Spirit, and man, and sin, and so on. The reason we felt that this was important is to present a brief, concise, and clear summary on these matters that someone who may be visiting our church might be very easily able to determine what we believe, and to assist the regular attenders here, those who call this their church home, by providing you with information to help you to understand uh, what Scripture says in these particular topics and doctrines, so that it may be helpful for you as you discuss with your lost friend or neighbor and have some background of understanding just what Scripture says in these. We also felt it was important to have this written down for the elders and the teachers who teach under the teaching ministry here at Redwood Christian Fellowship 
so that we have a, a, a consistent statement, if you will, of what we feel Scripture teaches on a particular issue. That we thought was important to be able to help uh, alleviate confusion. Confusion in the sense of if, if, if from the pulpit we are preaching one thing about the Bible, for instance, but in a community group or a Bible study you may hear something else that doesn't quite jive with what you may have just heard from the pulpit, um, that's a concern. And not a concern that it would take place anytime uh, in any of the groups because we know who is leading these groups, but um, it is the idea of, of making sure that what we're teaching is consistent wherever you're at so that you are hearing what we agree upon as, as what Scripture teaches. Not that we're saying in, that we're infallible, not that we're saying that we have all the answers that I can assure you up front, we don't. But we do have the desire to seek the answers. And as much as we can, we will give you what we believe Scripture teaches. And we encourage you, as Paul encouraged the Bereans, to search the Scriptures and test to see if what we teach and say is what Scripture says. You have a responsibility too as, as, as hearers of the Word to check on us. I remember as a young man, and probably into my early late teens and early 20s, I started realizing that my knowledge of Scripture, my doctrine, if you will, was pretty much based on what the preachers that I had been hearing taught. That they taught that, um, you know, one particular direction. I didn't challenge that. And while that may be okay as a child, might even be somewhat okay as a, a new Christian, it's not okay as you mature in Christ. You need to test it yourself. You need to see what Scripture teaches and check and see what we say. But one of the reasons we have these statements is so that it would be a an easy place for you to be able to go to not only get references on a particular issue, but see what we are saying Scripture is saying about a particular verse or a particular issue about God and the different issues that we address. This is what happens when you uh, talk off your notes and you have to make sure you don't duplicate your notes. So we hope that this uh, document, and even though the way it was worded isn't quite the way we meant it in the sense of uh, uh, voting to accept the bylaws, it is voting to see if we are going to accept the bylaws uh, next week, but we do hope that that document will be a helpful tool for you to use in your personal growth and evangelism. And that's really what we're here for. And we'll talk more about that as we go. Is It's our job to, to help everyone who attends here, to be able to live the, the type of life that Christ wants us to live and to evangelize. And so we try to provide tools. We try to provide messages and understanding of Scripture that might help you in that endeavor. Because we all have the same mission. And we all should be moving in that direction. And hopefully all of you are. Last week we took a quick break so that Pastor Paul, uh, Bob can preach the, uh, I don't know why I said Bob or uh, Paul there, but Pastor Bob can present the uh, Christmas message, which in some ways doesn't take a break at all. I mean, a lot of things that we've been teaching on has been on the incarnation of Christ and, and salvation and sin and man. So it, uh, it was a good opportunity for him to explain the very reason that we even come on a regular basis is uh, because we love God and God loves us. And we want to be together with other believers and we want to come together to worship him as he tells us to do. Today we'll pick up on another topic in the proposed statement of faith and address gifts of the Holy Spirit. And again, please remember that if you're an active member, at Redwood Christian Fellowship next week, 
uh, in your bulletin. We'll be putting a ballot in there for you to make a decision if you want to adopt the new statement of faith and bylaws or not. Um, we've spent a substantial amount of time going over that. Next week is D-Day, so let's, uh, let's make that decision and, and decide where we're going. Our gracious God and our Heavenly Father has blessed us with many gifts, with life, with our families, our jobs, our homes, our health, with salvation, if you're one of his children, his word, the Bible, it's a gift. He has given us his word in written form. There's many other things that he has given us. Paul teaches in the New Testament about other gifts that Christians are given by God. In Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 12, he wrote, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. A gift that God has given the church, of which all true Christians are part of, the church, were the apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And they were given to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. The men that we have in, in ministry, full-time ministry at churches, preaching the gospel day in and day out, the teachers that we have in the Sunday school classes, especially those who are called to be teachers. Not everyone necessarily is, is in, the, in the same um, uh, uh, position as being called as a teacher. And you'll typically see them as uh, uh, preacher teachers, things like that. But these are gifts to the church to help us to understand what the Word of God says. And he's specific about what it is that that is about, to help equip the saints for the work of ministry. That's what we're here for. That's what we're working on. That's what we're hoping for. That's our goal. And this gift for which we should be very thankful for and remember to thank God about because it is a gift to us. First, let's make sure that we understand what we mean when we use the term spiritual gifts. A well-known pastor and respected former, a well-known and respected former pastor of the Peninsula Bible Church of Palo Alto, and I've used a number of his uh, commentaries over the years. I know Bob uh, is well aware of him and has also used his commentaries. Once defined a spiritual gift as, quote, a capacity for service which is given to every true Christian without exception, and which was something each did not possess before he became a Christian. Uh, Modern-day Bible teacher and theologian Dr. J.I. Packer has written concerning spiritual gifts, a spiritual gift is an ability in some way to express, celebrate, display, and so communicate Christ. We wrote in the proposed statement of faith on this section that we believe that God has given each believer at least one spiritual gift. And it is possible to have more than one spiritual gift. But we know from Scripture that everybody, every true believer, has at least one spiritual gift. This is done at conversion through the Holy Spirit. That's one of his tasks, one of his jobs, is to pass out these gifts as he sees fit. The Apostle Paul calls these gifts spiritual gifts because he wants to emphasize their supernatural and heavenly nature. In 1 Corinthians 2.11, Paul wrote, All these, speaking of spiritual gifts, are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who appoints to each one individually as he wills. They're given to us from God, They're given to everyone individually who's a believer. And he determines which gift to give to which person. That's his termination. That's his his prerogative. 
And in Ephesians 4, 7, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. From my studies, it appears that when the scriptures speak of this type of gift, spiritual gifts, it usually uses the Greek word charisma, which, is, which may be a word that sounds familiar to many of us. It's the word we get charismatic from, although when it's used today, it's, being, uh, it's much more restricted in the meaning than would be intended by uh, the, the Greek word. In other words, we think of charismatic today, and a lot of us think of specific things. That's not what the Greek word, def- the, the definition of the Greek word charisma would, uh, would limit itself to. This word comes from a Greek noun that translates to grace. This is another word that's very familiar to many of us. Grace meaning unmerited favor. God gives these spiritual gifts to every true believer according to his good pleasure. These gifts are not to be confused with natural talents. These are things that you would not have had before you became a Christian. Although it is possible to exercise a spiritual gift through a natural talent. That's it. It's not that some other natural talent you have wouldn't be combined with that gift to be able to present it in a different way or present it more completely. Um, but it was something that you did not have before salvation. And I kind of think, and I, I probably should have actually wrote the reference in the uh, names down, and I probably couldn't have said his name anyway, but in the Old Testament, remember when um, they were building the temple? This is a good example of this type of gift. And they had some of the craftsmen who were given uh, through Moses the directions on what they're supposed to make. And one of the chief craftsmen was a master, if you will, in working with gold and, and making designs and things like that. But he was given more of a gift to be able to complete exactly what God wanted in the, in the design that he wanted. So that's an example of a natural talent. He was already working in that, but God gave him even more for a particular purpose that was used in combination with his natural talent. But typically it's not something that you would think of as a natural talent. Spiritual gifts are used only for spiritual purposes and are only to Christians. God does not give spiritual gifts to everybody who may be attending a church because we know there are people in the church who may not be believers. That for whatever reason they're here, they're here, but just because you're in the church and you're attending a service doesn't mean you automatically have a spiritual gift. You have to be a believer. You have to be a a, a Christian. And they are to be used for the building up of the body of Christ, the church. So to help clarify all this, a spiritual gift is something that is given to every true believer. It's from God. Every believer has at least one gift. And it is used for the building up of the church. So that's what I... I hope you understand from the use of spiritual gifts and what spiritual gifts are. Another author I read while studying this uh, wrote, to ensure the growth, health, and maturity of the church of Christ, God has given spiritual gifts to the church as a whole and to its individual members in particular. God's intention and ideal is that all true believers use their gifts to serve the church to help bring it in conformity with the image of Jesus Christ, which is the ultimate picture of the spiritual maturity that God intends. And I thought that was a good definition. Because what is our what is our goal? What is our purpose? What are we here for individually and in the in the world as Christians? And then what are we here for as a church? Is it not to, to be brought into conformity to the image of Jesus Christ? Isn't that what he's working on in our life? 
There are four separate chapters in the Bible that have a uh, list of the spiritual gifts. Uh, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4. And I've included a, a small chart. I think I passed it out afterwards to everybody in your bulletin that I obtained from a book called Foundations of the Christian Faith that I thought would be uh, helpful to you to get a quick look at these passages without having to go to them uh, this morning. It might also be helpful for you if you go home and continue looking into spiritual gifts and uh, give you a reference point to be able to um, look at these lists. Um, If you look at the chart, you'll see that several scriptural references are listed, and in each column there's a number of uh, gifts that are identified in that passage, and that also some of the lists are slightly different than the other lists. And some lists... Some gifts that the others may list, and some list list gifts that the one or the others don't list. But these are the the four uh, primary chapters that uh, are listing spiritual gifts in them in the New Testament. In all, there are 19 gifts mentioned, and from what I understand, um, this. This is not intended to necessarily be a, a complete list. Uh, we don't know if there's more gifts. I mean, God is God. He can give whatever gift to whoever he wants. And uh, I don't know that this passage, when it was written, necessarily was meant to be, this is all the gifts and that's it. Or there also could be, these are some gifts that were in effect at the time that they were written that may not all be in use again. So we don't know that. There's, there's, uh, um, all we know is that there are 19 gifts mentioned, and these are the chapters that, that we get that out of. Now, the elders, as we were writing uh, the statement of faith, uh, decided that when we were dealing with this particular section, not to spend a lot of time on various issues that would typically be discussed when teaching on the gifts of the, the Spirit. And if you look at that, we don't go through it, and I don't even think we actually listed each of the spiritual gifts that the New Testament um, uh, identified, nor did we spend a lot of time uh, explaining various um, viewpoints on what the gifts are and how they're used and things like that, which you would typically expect. We chose not to do that. We acknowledge that there are at least a couple Uh, views that are pretty commonly accepted today in the church on some of the uh, spiritual gifts. Both of them are are pretty well represented uh, to one degree or another in church history and explaining it. And and even in the leadership, there are slight differences in how we look at some of the, the gifts and if they are all in effect today or not. So what we decided instead was that instead of accepting one of the more common views, we felt it was more important to remain on firm ground and just write what is clear in scriptures about spiritual gifts. And we've said that several times so far, that this is specifically that every believer is graciously equipped by the Holy Spirit for some aspect of ministry. We know that. Scripture is very clear of that, that everyone is given at least one spiritual gift. And we know what it's for, for the building up of the, of the body, meaning that every true believer is given a gift to be used in ministry. The pastor or elders are not the only Christians who, in, who are in full-time ministry in the church. And that's easy for us to, I guess, come to when we see the same person or persons in the pulpit every Sunday and the same people doing all the various tasks and the worship team always looks the same and the, a lot of the Sunday school teachers look the same. And we think that, oh, well, they're in full-time ministry here. And sometimes we forget to look in the mirror. You also are called to be in full-time ministry. Maybe not being paid for it, which might be nice, but we can't, as a church, afford to do that. 
but, uh, but we are all called into full-time ministry and as full-time ministers of Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit gives us spiritual gifts to be able to carry out that calling. He didn't put you in that occupation and didn't give you something to be able to carry it out. He gave you your gift or your gifts. We also see scriptures very clearly stating that the local church functions best when all believers are exercising their spiritual gifts with an attitude of love and humility. Remember Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 concerning gifts where he used the picture of a human body as he explained the church of God. In verse 14 he wrote, For the body does not consist of one member, but many. And we all have one, so we we get that picture. Uh, We have many parts to our body. Further down he continues by clarifying that he is in fact speaking about the church when he says, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. As the various parts of the human body work together for a common good, the picture we are to see here is that individually we are using the various gifts we are given for the common good of the body of God, of the, of the church. Now while it is possible to compensate for a lost digit or even an arm or a leg. If you ever had to deal with a broken arm or broken leg and maybe in a cast, you start realizing very quickly that, yeah, you could probably get by without it, but it really makes life a lot more complicated. Well, that's the same way with the church. Either we all are using our gifts for the common purpose of ministering to the church and building up the church or those who aren't using their gifts. The rest of us have to walk around with a cast on or limp around with our leg broken and having to compensate for it. It just works better when everything is working the way it's it's intended to be. And so it is with the church. It functions best when all believers are exercising their spiritual gifts but in a particular way, and that's with the attitude of love and humility. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13 about what happens when we use our gifts without the right attitude. Remember how he described it as a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I mean, you can have your gift and use it for the wrong purpose. And in Paul's eyes, in the way way he describes it as you might as well just stand out in the road and just bang on a, on a gong. Or you're getting the same effect. That's all you're going to get out of it. It's just a bunch of noise with no real purpose. His purpose for chapter 13 and his conclusion is that all of the spiritual gifts needed to be exercised in love. And that's love as Jesus' love. Agape love is that love that looks out for the needs of others first, as Jesus did. Scriptures are also very clear to say that we're to earnestly desire spiritual gifts. If you don't know what your gift is, you should be desiring to do that. You should be desiring to figure out what it is that you're supposed to be doing. And there's a particular purpose that God gives these gifts, They are for the edification or strengthening of believers and for the spreading of the gospel, for evangelism. They are to equip the saints for the work of ministry, as Ephesians 4 said earlier, and for the building up the body of Christ. What does this look like? What what does being involved in ministry look like, according to Ephesians 4? It's having a a preaching and teaching ministry that provides regular opportunity to hear and study the Word of God together, and we strive to do that. But this not only involves the elders and teachers to actually prepare our sermons and lessons, but it requires the individual to regularly participate or to place yourself in a position to hear it. The elders can stand up here and, and preach a sermon all we want, 
But if you're not regularly attending, then we can't talk to you. You're not hearing the sermon. If you're not involved in some kind of Bible study, then you're missing the benefit of the Bible study and of the teaching. So we can only be part of and provide the teaching ministry, but you have a responsibility too to put yourself in the position where you can hear it. It involves individuals getting to know each other and to share your lives together so that when someone may need a little more spiritual or physical help or encouragement, you might recognize it and try to meet the need. We speak of this often about we're brothers and sisters in Christ. We, we should be loving each other. And, in, and most of us do very good at this. I know you do because we, we hear reports of things that people are doing and the things that you guys uh, you know, step up and, and, and reach out and help people. And it's a, it is a very great blessing when we hear those things going on. But if you don't take the time to get to know each other, if you don't go out for coffee with that person, or have them over to your house, or take the moment to talk to them in the back after church, to get to know them some, how do you ever hope to even have an idea if they're hurting? You probably won't. And same with them. If you don't, if you are reclusive and you don't share your own life with people and, and be responsive when there's uh, invites and things like that, then you don't get to learn more about that individual either. It takes some effort. It takes some work. But the reason is so that we might be able to encourage each other. It takes work. Sometimes it takes risk. Risk to expose yourself a little more than what you're comfortable with. And I I struggle with this. I'm fairly content sometimes to do what I need to do during the day, during the week, and I can stay home and read a book and be fairly happy with Lisa. So, but we need, to, we need to take risk. We need to be a little more involved in reaching out. It involves encouraging each other to walk in the manner of the calling that we've been called to. We're all called to be like Christ. But we're also called as brothers and sisters to help encourage each other when you see especially someone who may be falling into habitual sin, to encourage them, lovingly encourage them to do what is right and to do what they're supposed to be doing. But again, that requires you knowing them a little bit. Otherwise, you may never know that that's taking place, that they're struggling in a particular, in a particular thing or a particular sin. Paul called the Christians at Ephesus to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which he had been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. It's in Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. We see a brother or sister giving in to sin. We do have the responsibility to help try to encourage them to come back and do what is right. But it has to be done in the right attitude, in the right frame of mind. It involves you learning and understanding what your spiritual gift is. It may be one thing for you to come here and go, okay, yeah, now I understand what a spiritual gift is. I understand everyone has one, but I have no idea what mine is. Well, that's a little bit of a problem because you can't do your ministry, you can't exercise your gift if you don't even know what it is. How can you effectively use it to help build up the body? And the answer is you can't. Not very well, at least. If you don't know what your gift is, please reach out to one of the elders or one of the group leaders, and ask for their help to understand um, this better, to understand your gifts. And I can give you a head start through on what they will probably begin with. First of all, start studying the Bible. 
I gave you that sheet. It has the list of verses on it already. Find out what the Bible says about spiritual gifts. Use the statement, the proposed statement of faith, and look at what we wrote in there. And look at the references that we gave you. That's a good place to start. Another thing to do is pray. Pray that God will show you the gifts that he's given you. He's the one who gave them to you. He says if we need something or don't know something, ask. So pray. Pray and ask him, what is the gift that you gave me? You should make a sober assessment of your own spiritual strengths and abilities. But don't do that until you've done the first two steps. You want to start off by studying Scripture and praying first. You can come up with some pretty crazy thoughts and ideas if you jump to number three first. And seek the wisdom of other Christians to help identify the gifts. Talk to people that you, especially if you see somebody exercising a gift that you think you may have. If you, if you think of someone who has a gift of mercy and you think you have the gift of mercy and you've seen somebody in the church who is, seems to you to be doing a great job at exercising that gift, that's a great person to go talk to. Ask them how they understood that. How did they exercise their gift? What types of things they do and how do they encourage that? So reach out to the other Christians. While the elders did not take a stand on the issue of if one or more gifts are still in use today in the church or if they uh, cease to be given, which is some of the common um, thoughts today in the, in the, the uh, Christian church uh, because they used to be they were used by God in, in a particular time frame for a particular reason there's there's different gifts that some people think are, are not necessary anymore we did feel that it was important to recognize that Paul addresses our behavior when we are together corporately so we didn't get into specific gifts and how they function But we did get into saying that, you know what, though? We know that the gifts are for a common purpose. We know they're supposed to be used for a particular purpose and that it needs to be done in an orderly manner. We wrote in the proposed statement of faith, God has designed the church in such a way that all members have to be dependent on one another And therefore, all uses of spiritual gifts must be in a manner that is not defiant or disruptive, but is orderly and edifying. We felt Scripture was very clear on that. While we may differ in opinions, if speaking in tongues or interpretation of tongues still has a useful purpose today in the church, we do agree that God will not give gifts to individuals to be used in a manner that is disruptive, self-promoting, confusing, or not something that will edify the church. We occasionally will bring up the Westminster Shorter Catechism or the Westminster Catechism, one of the first, well, actually the first um, statement it makes is what is our chief end? What is our main purpose? What are we here for as as humans and as Christians especially? And the answer that it gives us is man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So anything that distracts from that is not from God. If you go somewhere or if you're involved in a service that has gifts of any sort being used and is not being used to glorify God and brings him glory that distracts from his glory then it's not from God. We are taught that there is an order to things and this includes our time together here. We, we don't come in here and everybody just decide to preach or talk on whatever you feel like talking about on a Sunday morning. You'd be the only one who ever heard it. The rest of us would all be here on our own. There's an order to things. There's a, there's a way we 
we do things for a particular purpose so that you can, you know, everybody can hear what is going on and be part of the service. The New Testament provides very specific guidelines and purposes for the use of gifts in a corporate venue. And it is the responsibilities of the elders to ensure that they're being used correctly and appropriately. In smaller groups, it'd be the responsibility of the teachers that are over them to make sure that things are being done orderly and that they're handled in a particular manner. But that doesn't mean that discussion on particular gifts should not happen or that someone cannot have a differing opinion on the gifts. And like I said, even, even among the elders, there's some slight differences in, in what we may believe. But it, 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 it isn't in the same category to us as things such as Scripture and Jesus and his incarnation and salvation, things like that. Those are very defined, black and white in Scripture, where spiritual gifts, there's a little more leeway as far as what we're given. And therefore, we uh, chose to deal with it the way that we did. But a healthy conversation about it, teaching on it, that's all good. And it's okay to be in a study where people may share what we have written in the statement, but also give those differing opinions. That may be even a better, uh, more appropriate venue to do that. Teach what a couple of the different opinions are on different gifts so that you can understand it as a believer and you may have more to go study and, and find out what you believe. And then we end the statement, and I'll be wrapping up here in just a moment. We end the statement with these words. But, our, but in our eagerness to maintain the spirit and the bond of peace, any disagreement within the congregation and leadership on spiritual gifts are to be held in love. That spiritual fruit and the greatest commandment. So when we deal with these things, we need to deal with it with love and humility and work it out. So let's conclude today's service by uh, sharing communion together. Another gift that God has given us. Uh, worship and communion is part of our worship. And uh, as we ask the ushers to come up and pass the elements out, we ask that uh, you hold the element until we have all received and we will participate together. Safety when my 
Again, not only dealing with this particular statement in the statement of faith, but others, I encourage you, don't let those of us who preach from the pulpit or teach you in your Bible studies be the only source that you use in life to develop your doctrine and understanding of God. Study. Study God's Word. It's your responsibility. You need to do that. In fact, we encourage you that if you ever hear something that we preach that might be contrary to what you think Scripture teaches, come up afterwards and talk to us. And then let's have a discussion on it and see which one of us of either is, is misunderstanding something. But don't let us dictate your doctrine of Scripture. You need to develop it yourself. You need to use the Holy Spirit in your life to search and, and, and study Scripture and develop your own. In fact, Bob, as we've been going through um, all the studies that we did, he spent time going through writing his own um, statement of faith, if you will, of what he sees as his Scripture teaches in these various um, uh, topics. That's a good thing for all of us to do. It should be something we strive to do. One of the ways that we worship God is through communion. This time that we have together right now. It's a time for his children to come together and, and symbolize taking a meal together as Jesus did with his disciples on the night that he was betrayed. During the meal, Jesus took bread and he blessed it and he broke it and passed it among his disciples. And let's ask his blessing on this and then we will take it together. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this great gift of communion. We thank you for what it symbolizes, what you did for us in salvation, that you sent your son who came and lived as man who was sinless, who represented us in your great plan of redemption, who died for us. We thank you that the wrath that we deserve has been paid for already. We thank you that he died and raised again, that he's in heaven even today, standing next to our Father, advocating for us. We thank you that he's coming back someday, which is our great hope. And we also see in this meal, we pray that you will bless our time together, that you will bless this bread as we partake together. And again, we thank you for it. In Jesus' name. And Jesus told his disciples as he passed the bread out, and he said, this is my body for which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup and again blessed it. And again, Father, we thank you for this representation that you've given us of Christ's blood. We thank you that it was shed for us. We thank you for your great mercy and your salvation. And again, we bless, ask that you bless this time that we have together in communion. In Jesus' name. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it. Jesus concluded by telling his disciples, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.
that's what we are doing here each time that we have communion together. God bless you. Have a good week. It was good to see you today. And uh, we'll see you next week, hopefully. And uh, I did, while I was sitting in the back, realize that we had forgot to mention the sock tree is still here. We'll be here for a little while. I know some of you have been bringing things. Don't forget it's back there. Uh, You've got several weeks yet. If you pick up socks or winter clothes or anything, feel free to bring those and we'll get them to the rescue mission uh, sometime in early uh, January. God bless you.